1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through chapter 5, verse 1. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. That's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. If you would join me in prayer, and now we'll pray together. Father, we come as your people. We also come as the household of God, as members of your family. Because of all that Jesus did on that cross, that he became sin for us, he became a curse. He was reviled and he became vile. He bore your wrath righteously so that we would not bear the wrath that is rightly deserved for us. And because of that, we, you gave us the right to be children of God. And as children of God, we're also part of this family, and we are told in this passage that we're to see one another as brothers and sisters. But sadly, so often we don't really treat each other as brothers and sisters. Not really, not at the core of our being. And we don't perhaps see that in this case, the spirit is far thicker than blood. Help us to remember that, O oh Lord. Lord, we also want to lift up to you, uh, especially uh, Eric Hu, who lost his father. I know that he's been caring for him in, in Taiwan for many years. Pray for he and Stephanie and the Hu family. Pray, Father, for blessings and just your peace on them. We know that there are so many who have lost mothers and fathers in this uh, dreadful season of disease and viruses. We look forward to the day, O oh Lord, when that is all gone, when there are no more tears, no more sufferings. And we thank you that we can pray together on the basis of all that your son did for us. So Lord, open our eyes to your word. Help us to see what is truth what is false. May we never be called liars because we're worshiping you and yet hating our brother and our sister. We thank you for your word. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have had the opportunity to join us at all this past week for evening devotions, Dave Stroud and I have been sharing our time together. And Dave Stroud, he is a chaplain with the U.S. Navy. And he's working in particular at 29 Palms in Central California. That's a Marine training base. And if you know anything about the Marines, you know that they are perhaps, arguably so, one of the toughest military branches in the U.S. military. The reason is because they are the first ones to hit the beachhead when guns are ablazing, when machine, get, uh, machine nests are blasting through, and they have to go through that. To go through that, you need a lot of resolve. Actually, you need much more than resolve because even the greatest resolve will break down under such fire. 
And so what you really need is to understand that you're a unit, you're a family. And so that training is all about breaking an individual down to their very core and then rebuilding them up to be part of a new family called the Marines. They, they get a new identity. That's their identity. That's who they are. In many ways, as Dave shared, that's a great metaphor for the church. We are a family. But we're a family not just because we go into a building and sing together or because we checked out a church and their program and whether they're kid, they have a good kids program or anything like that. Because as you know right now, that wouldn't cause us to be together. There are no kids programs. There's no building. There's no corporate singing. There is singing, but we're not singing together. We're not listening. We're not sitting right next to each other right now. If it was all dependent on that, there would be no church. But that's not actually what causes us to be a church, a family. It actually is the idea that we are broken down to our very core. All of our preconceived ideas and worldviews, they start here, but God does something dramatic. He breaks us down and he builds us up. He renews. He doesn't just renew. He actually recreates. And so in this way, we see John discussing the implications of what it means to truly be that type of family. We're going to look at this text in 1 John four nineteen through 5, 1, and we're going to look at two ways in which we are a family, two means by which we're a family. First is that according to verse 19, we have the same father. That is primary, foundational, essential. Second is that Families, and this is really common sense, families love brothers and sisters. They love their siblings. Verse 20 through all the way through chapter 5, verse 1. And so first, let's look at the idea that we have the same father. In verse 19, we have the same father who initiated love with us first. We love because he first loved us. In the NASB, it translates that verse, verse 19, By saying we love, not just that we love others or we love him, but we love because he first loved us. And that's pretty important. The idea that there is no object to our love. We we love that. That is to say that love is not possible without God loving us first. It's not just that I love my friend, my mother, my daughter, my son. What John is saying is that It's actually not possible to love in the way in which God reveals love, initiates, and opens up our hearts to love. Love is possible because God is a God of love. Let me illustrate this. Many of you have been to Africa. Um, You've met some of the children who are there who are incredibly broken and vulnerable. They have not only lost father and sometimes mother, They've also been abused emotionally, sometimes sexually, physically. They've gone through great trauma, and they're deeply wounded and incredibly vulnerable. George likes to say that when you go to Africa and you go to a village and you see children, and if you go there, you will see this. There'll be a ton of kids who will come. And he always says, look behind the poor children, and you'll see the poorest of children. 
you'll see the most vulnerable because the most vulnerable children don't come running to you. They sit in the corner or they're in the back, but their eyes are so vacant because they can't speak. They won't come to you. They're so broken that they can't love first at all. That's what it means to be so broken, so vulnerable that you don't even respond to love. You can't. It's just not possible. There's an expressionless feature about them. And spiritually speaking, what John is saying in verse 19 is that's exactly who we are. We are that child, that orphan way in the back whose eyes are vacant, who is expressionless when all the other children are running forward. We just don't know how to love. We can't understand it. It's not possible because there's such a weakness and a vulnerability. It's in this state, that state, that the Father comes to us. Listen to what Isaiah says about God's love in that context, in Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is dwelling in his holy place to actually be with those whose hearts are so sunken, he revives the spirit of the lowly, the contrite heart. This is how we know we have the same father. When we realize that we are like that child, we are most vulnerable. We are so lowly that we cannot revive our own spirit. It's not possible That is to say that I cannot love enough. We also realize that we don't internally have the love that it takes to love others rightly. Sure, we can respond to people with good nature, be kind to a certain extent, but that's the challenge of trying to love on the basis of a love without God is that we love those whom love us. We are responding to a sort of a tit-for-tat type of love. That's why we love people to a point, to a limit. As long as they're good to us, as long as they make sense to us, as long as their personalities match ours, as long as they're not too odd or too strange, as long as they don't demand to us, as long as they don't call us out, as long as they don't push their limits, push boundaries. Don't be surprised when people are difficult to love. We shouldn't be surprised. If we agree with John, we love because he first loved us, meaning that before he first loved us, there's no love, not really. And so when we see someone who is apart from God, who doesn't know the love of Christ, and they become difficult to love, why are we ever surprised by that? Why do we ever think that Well, they shouldn't be like that. They shouldn't be so difficult. They shouldn't be so strange, so odd, so demanding, so compulsive, so self-centered. I mean, we were like that. Everyone's like that. Everyone at the core is like that without God's love. And so it should never surprise us that people are difficult to love. It's not just the people who are difficult to love who are difficult to love. It's people who are, quote, easy to love, who are also difficult to love. 
Your husband, your wife is difficult to love. You know that. You're chill to love. Your parents, whether they're, whether you're five years old and you're trying to love your mom or your dad or whether you're 45, 50 years old and you're trying to love your mom or dad, they are difficult to love. Siblings are difficult to love. Fellow church members, they're difficult to love. That should make sense. You and I also, we're hard to love. Whether you want to admit it or not, you need to look at yourself and realize that you, yes, you, you are so difficult to love. I am so difficult to love. I have anger, self-pity. There's a heart. All of our hearts have a heart of envy, covetousness. It's a battle. According to Romans 7, that battle is still raging. As long as we're in this world, it's still a battle. The spirit who is calling us to himself is still waging war against our flesh. And so all of these things that happen in our world should not surprise us because we can see, even in our own souls, that we're difficult to love. But someone loved us first while we were difficult to love, while it was impossible, actually, for us to love another perfectly. Something dramatic had to take place in order for us to be loved that way. The father sent his son. The father sent his son so that you and I, when Jesus died on that cross, he would bear all the difficulties that we have in our heart that make us difficult to love. He would bear that on himself. And when God would look at his son on that cross, he would see his son, no longer as the beloved son, but as a curse, as someone who is against him, rebellious, as someone who is vile, as someone who is horrid in nature, in morality, as someone who has cursed God, who has turned their back on him. Jesus would bear all of that so that you and I would be welcomed as sons and daughters. We cannot miss this. We have to understand that it takes a complete overhaul, a destruction of what we once were to become anew. It's not as though we go through, an, an, when we become a Christian, we become a, a newer and improved version of ourselves. No, that's not what happens. When we are born again, and that literally is what happens to us, we're born again. What we were was destroyed. We're made anew. We are different. We are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And I know we all think, but I'm still struggling. Trust me, that conversion, that transformation of what happened when we came and were met by Christ and he bore our sins on that tree, what took place in us today is a new creation. That's how radical it is. It's so different that, yes, you still struggle with the same sins, but there is zero possibility that you or I would ever be able to love God without that transformation. That's why it is a transformation, because it's impossible to love God without that new work, that redemptive work. 
before, what this means is that we have to love differently. We love differently. We don't just have to love. We do love differently than we ever did before we met Jesus. Before, we love people and others based on the what are you going to do for me type of love. But after we met Christ, after he transforms us, we love because we are not any longer going to love solely on the basis of what's expected of us, based on the fact that we're the same physical family or we have the same personality traits or the same race or the same culture or circumstance or socioeconomic class. See, again, that's all how the world loves. But once we met Jesus, there's a a difference, a transformation of who we love and how we love them. And this empowers us then to go to the second part, which is we not only have the same father, we love our brothers and sisters, according to verses 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's look at what John tells us about this love. First, we cannot love God and hate our brother and sister. That's very obvious from this passage. You know, notice that there are no exceptions. The Christian cannot say, I love Jesus, and yet say, I absolutely refuse to forgive or love so-and-so. Specifically, a brother or sister in Christ. There's no excuse to say, but if you knew, Jesus, what he or she done had done to me. Now, here's the thing. The cross nullifies that. Remember on that cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Once he said that, he undercuts any excuse that we have before God to say, God, but if you only knew what he or she had done to me, if you only understood how much pain I went through, you cannot say that to Jesus who is nailed on that cross for you. If you want to try, try imagining that. Try imagining that you could go look at Jesus on that cross and say, but if you only knew, how could you do that? Do you see why John writes what he says? You can't say, I hate this person, but I love God. You're a liar. That's, he's very blunt there. I don't know if I would have written it that way. It was, it's so strong. But he's saying it because it is true. You're lying to yourself. You can't say you love God if you hate someone. Loving God also has a tangible expression. It actually loves brothers and sisters. That is to say, no matter how much we pray or take a really deep spiritual retreat or fast or write Christian bestsellers or go overseas to preach the gospel or serve in the city's most poorest of districts or raise a beautiful moral family, if you still hate your brother or your sister in Christ, you don't really love God. Again, it's almost, I feel bad in saying that, but that's the reality. That's what John is saying. And he's saying there's such a disconnect because you can't do all of these things and hate someone who is called a brother and sister and say you really love God and you're doing all these things for God. You know what it actually means is that you can actually do all those things and not do it for God at all. 
And some of those things are exactly things that are expressions of love. But we actually don't love them at all. Actually, we've seen that even in love relationships. You can take vacations with someone you, quote, love, but actually despise them. You can give a gift, a beautiful gift, an expensive gift. And yet, if your heart is not there for that person, then it doesn't matter what that gift looks like. The gift is not love. It's the heart that gives the gift that's love. And so, in this way, Paul makes clear for us that in the end, all of your, yours and mine, when we give our gifts, our worship, everything to God, but if there's no love behind it, it will be burnt up on the last day. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.13 because he's saying exactly that. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. On that last day, oh, I hope you don't see Jesus on the basis of your, quote, love for him, unquote, that that love was not with your heart, but it was actually with all sorts of actions and, and these things that you think are so good. And again, it could be anything. And you come before him, but if you hate, what John is saying is if you hate your brother or your sister, then you're actually really showing what's deep down in your heart. That actually all those gifts, all those acts of worship are not worship at all. They're lies. Paul again shows us in the same letter to the Corinthian church of what we could do and yet all of these things are for naught. In chapter 13, the great chapter on love, verses 1 through 3, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Look at what Paul says we could be doing and yet actually have no love for God or for anyone else. We could be speaking in tongues. We could be using all sorts of spiritual charismatic gifts. Things that look so spiritual. They look spiritual. To the Corinthian church, it looked very spiritual. They really believed that if you could go around speaking in all sorts of tongues, even if you could speak all languages, but if you don't have a true love for God and a heart that loves others, your brothers and sisters, it's all for naught. That's all fake. If you actually have prophetic powers, you can actually speak of the future. You can understand all sorts of mysteries, all knowledge, theology, intellectual knowledge, philosophies. You're incredibly brilliant. And you feel as though you're using that talent and gifts for God, but yet you don't really have love. Then... That's not, that's nothing. And here's the, the, really the clincher. If you deliver up your body to be burned, what Paul is saying is that you can actually martyr yourself. But if you have not love, you gain nothing. A lack of love 
is a visible expression of your lack for, of love for God. If you don't love someone else, you don't love God. Think of the father who faithfully serves at the church, spends all of his ministry and his pastoral career caring for other people. Maybe he's a church planter, a pastor, he's a leader. He's preaching the gospel to others, but then he comes home and he's cruel to his wife, to his children. He's self-centered. He can be in his room hours praying and studying the Bible, but is angry and irritable and expects everyone to serve him at home. That person is in grave danger. This person, actually, John says, is a liar and the truth is not in him. Wow, he has seen but cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's a scary place to be. So how do we love our brothers and sisters? We look at verse 1 of chapter 5 and sort of gives us the answer. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. First is we have to believe we are born again. We are made anew. That we didn't go through some sort of self-help program. You didn't listen to a really great speaker one day and talk about the gospel and you suddenly said, that sounds really good, I really like it, and I want to live that life. And by doing so, you became a really good person. You got a good moral system. We aren't suddenly convinced philosophically that Christianity is the best religion out of all other religions. We didn't meet another Christian and think to ourselves, wow, that person is really great. I want to be just like them. To do so is to far underestimate what it took us to actually believe in the gospel, to turn to Christ, that we have to be born again. Listen to how Paul describes what it takes for us to be born again. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Look at what Paul says was our state before Christ came into our life. We were dead in our trespasses. We were dead because of sin. Now think about what death means. Dead people don't come alive because people convince them that they're not really dead. It's not how it happens. If someone dies, you can't convince them that they should just get up. A person who has physically died cannot do something to come alive. That physically dead people can't reason themselves or think of themselves or will themselves or energetically push themselves to get up. Paul uses that same idea to describe what we are like spiritually. And he doesn't give any wiggle room for us to think that, well, maybe we could do a little bit of work. No, dead people are dead. There is nothing they can do. And so Paul's use of that very word, that idea, shows us that spiritually speaking, there is nothing we contribute so that we can somehow make ourselves alive. I tell you this because this is the fundamental means by which we can love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Unless you are born again, you cannot love one another the way the Bible tells us because it takes a resurrection, a transformation. It is a resurrection of your soul to be born again. And 
If that doesn't happen, then we'll always by nature be self-centered and self-seeking in our love and our care for one another. You know, we might be able to like people. Liking people is being polite. Liking people is inviting them over to your house once and saying, okay, I've done my good deed. You know, I invited them over to give them a meal. But what if they say, can I come again? Uh, okay. What about third time? Can I come again? Now, obviously, I'm not saying we should always... There are other factors involved. There are always other factors. But in our hearts, we know what our hearts are thinking. If we're honest with ourselves, if someone is saying, can I call you? And perhaps they're not the easiest person to talk to. And maybe we need to really search our hearts and say, do I love this person or do I only want to like them? See, love is saying, regardless of the difficulty, regardless of the challenge, I will press forward to even sacrifice my own time, my own will, because I am born again. I have to believe it. I have to remember that I've, I've been raised from the grave, the spiritual grave, and eternally, physically even then, I will be raised from the grave. That person is anew. And so unless I really believe I am born again, I cannot love this way. You'll only like people. And liking means I like them to a limit. I, I can put up with them. Or I can be with them as long as they look like me, as long as they think like me, as long as they act like me, as long as they don't press any limits or boundaries, as long as they just fit into my paradigm of what is acceptable to me then I'll like them. But do not say you love them. We have, to, we have to be honest with ourselves and say, I like them, I don't love them. And when you say, I don't love them, then you have to ask, wait a second, but God loved me first. And he says in this passage that if I don't love my brother or sister, then, but I say I love God, then I'm a liar. Do you see the logic? We cannot get behind the Try to escape the logic. The logic is so clear. John doesn't let us go. Paul doesn't let us go. The Lord doesn't let us go because he cares so much about us that he doesn't want us to fool ourselves. And we are so, so good at deceiving ourselves. We can deceive many people. We can even deceive ourselves, but there is one person we can never deceive. The God who knows our thoughts, our hearts, our motives. So the way that we guard against deceiving ourselves is to understand truth and to actually have others who understand that truth to speak into your life. Now, that's not easy, but we need it. Secondly is we must decide to treat one another as family, meaning you choose to love your brother and sister based on the faith that has resurrected you, transformed you. You don't feel your way to it. You choose, you decide, you will yourself. You say, I believe truth, therefore I will act. Not I feel, therefore I act. It's I believe it is true, therefore I act. Even though you don't feel, trusting that the feelings and the emotions will come, that God will change. I can't tell you how many times since I've been doing the evening devotions that I go where it's around 7, uh, it's around 7.30, I'm about to connect with somebody whoever I'm speaking with, whether it's George or Dave thus far, and I'm just tired. And there's a, 
there's a, a weariness. It, it's it's a creeping into my soul, partly temptation from the enemy, partly my own physical limitations, partly my lack of desire to want God. But every time I go and I start talking about God's word, the flood of joy and delight and thrill of God's word, it catches up and it takes over. You know, that's the thing is I am not here saying that God doesn't use our emotions or our, our will, our passions to actually want to love him. Romance is a big part of our relationship with someone we love. And in the same way, God utilizes that. But I find at least to be the case that God's word is truth before even the feelings. And that when you believe the truth and you decide, I will follow this, regardless of how I feel, God always brings along the passions. Sometimes it is passion driven, but many times it's not, at least not the perseverant walk and journey. It really is something that you just decide you're going to do this no matter what. And in the same way, we have to decide to love. Look at what John says again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Meaning, when he says Jesus is the Christ, Christ means anointed one, the anointed Messiah, the Savior, the one who is going to rescue you from your sins, to redeem you. Meaning that you need rescue. And until you believe that you need rescue from the one, the only one who can provide it, you won't be able to love others. So on the basis of Jesus being our rescuer, our redeemer, our savior, we're able to love. We decide to love one another on that and on that alone. Jesus doesn't allow us exceptions. He doesn't say, you can love, you love everyone except the murderer, the assaulter, the drug addict, the strange guy, um, love everybody except those people. That's okay because they're love the person who doesn't look like you. If they can't speak your language, if they're a different life stage, you don't have to love them. They're a little bit too hard. Paul was a murderer. Everyone wanted to avoid. He was the person whom the church was afraid of, rightly so, because he had just been bringing dragging Christians to their imprisonment, sometimes even to their death. Everyone should have been afraid of Paul. I think if Paul, Saul, had come to our church, we would have all been afraid of him. And Jesus says, no, you got to love him too. And then Matthew was a traitor. He worked for the Roman government. He stole his own people's money to gain advantage for himself and his own family. And he did it at the disadvantage of his own people. He was a traitor. That Roman government was imprisoning and putting their people to death. There was a really strange Philippian girl who joined the church. She was one of the first girls who joined the church. She had a demon. She was very odd. If she came to our church, you might shy away. You might think, well, she's so strange. I don't want to be anywhere near her. Maybe she's dangerous. There were former prostitutes in this church. John Newton was a slave trader, a human trafficker. Would you want him in our church? If he came and said, you know, I was a human trafficker, but now I am, I've turned to Christ. You see, 
we wouldn't, we don't love people like that because we became a new improved inversion of ourselves or we, we tried to be more moral. We love people like that because we were first loved by God because we were like that. We decide to love someone like that, regardless how we f- whether we feel like it. And that is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. When we trust Jesus to do what all parents tell their children to do, hey, he's your brother and sister, treat them better. Mom, dad, don't you do that to your own kids when they're fighting? Why are you fighting? Your brother, your sister, you only have one brother, you only have one sister. I mean, we all say that as parents. Well, guess what our heavenly father says to us? I gave my son for you. You did not deserve it because grace by nature is undeserved love and favor. And so if God did that, if I did that for you and I did it for both of you, why do you hate each other so much? You're no better than that person, your brother, your sister. So we have to decide to love a brother and sister in Christ. We have to decide based on faith that we have been redeemed by a savior. Thirdly is we have to fight for our family. This is a fight. Once we have realized and decided that we're a family, like all families, we start fighting for each other. We defend each other. When the bully comes, the bully's picking on on our little brother or little sister, you as the older brother or sister, you go and confront that bully. You don't just let that bully just take all run all over your little kid brother or sister. You know, Marines... They have that one motto, leave no Marine behind. When a Marine gets wounded or even killed in action, they will bring and risk their own lives to drag that body, bring that body home so they, they could give it, that person a burial. In the same way, we have to fight like that for one another because it is a fight. It is a battle and it is a war. There is an enemy. He is on the prowl. He is doing all that he can, especially right now, to destroy each one of you and me, to make us feel so weary, not just because of shelter in place, but weary of following Jesus. Maybe you don't realize you're even becoming weary. You know, that's the thing about weariness is that sometimes you don't even feel it until it's too late and it just comes in a blink of an eye and suddenly you're worn, suddenly you collapse. Maybe you don't physically collapse, but spiritually you're collapsing, you're falling, you're fainting. Even youths grow tired and weary, according to Isaiah 40. Young men, young women stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Maybe you don't even realize that you've become used to being a socially distanced church. You like it. (laughs) But my friends, that is a clear and present danger for us. To worship God without actually seeing that we need each other. Yes, our difficult brothers and sisters. We have to be in a place where we see how essential we are to knowing Christ. That's why I am urging all of you, do as much as you can to connect with brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're part of Wellspring, connect with our local body. If you're not a part of Wellspring, connect with your local body and be in each other's lives no matter what. Don't just give up. Don't just decide, well, you know what? It's just so nice and comfortable here. You're in danger in that way. This is a spiritual war. The devil wants you separated from his people. He wants you to cut off, to run, to hide, to remove yourself 
from as many people as possible. He wants you to be convinced that you are the most important person in your life, your family, and that's it. He wants you to be separated from the flock because when you're in that place, you're most vulnerable, most in danger, most susceptible to his schemes, to his cunning. And brothers and sisters, that's why we have to fight for our family. I was watching a video of a family that was stuck in a flash flood in India. They were standing in this, in sort of this little island on, with onrushing waters coming on both sides. And the, this tragic part is, is it was next to a cliff. And you could see that cliff, which was once dry, was now a, essentially a waterfall. And so there, this family was standing and the water was rising. And so that island was shrinking. It was getting smaller and smaller. smaller. It was about five family members. And they're all just stuck. And you could see the, the little patch of land just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. People are trying and reaching out and trying to grab this family. And they're reaching and they're creating a human chain. They're doing the best that they could. But the water at the torrents were getting stronger and stronger. Finally, the water just came so greatly all at once that it rushed them all over the side of the cliff, down the waterfall. And you watch that and it's just this, this tragic feeling. We're not meant to be an individual or a family on a little island because, my friends, note this, this island gets smaller and smaller. And the devil and his schemes are pushing. And they are getting you. They want you running down, running away. And eventually you're gone. There will come a day where there's no more return, no more grace, no more hope. There's that day where when you see the Lord face to face and if you think to yourself, I can do this by myself, that's not a good place to be. We have to fight for each other. That's why we're gathering as much as we can in all sorts of means and all sorts of ways from Bible studies to prayer to discipleship groups to uh, being able to even just spend time cooking together or learning or growing or teaching others. It's because we don't want to be isolated and alone. It's important you're not. My friends, um, I was uh, just listening and reading to uh, a philosopher, Jordan Peterson. He's not a Christian, but he says this, make friends with people who want the best for you. Another way to put it is what Proverbs says in Proverbs seventeen seventeen: a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. You want a people who are going to celebrate with you, who are going to enjoy you, who are going to be there through very difficult times. This is that time. They're not just friends, they're family. We're family together. We're brothers and sisters. And in this season, at this time, we have to be a blessing to one another so that we can go out to be a blessing to others. You know, in order for us to really be a blessing to others, we have to first know what it means to be a family. And when we know how to be a family, then we can say, let's go out. Let's get out there. Let's share the love of Christ to this lost and broken world. Let's tell people about Jesus. Let's serve the poor and the brokenhearted. Let's show the world that Jesus is truly King and Lord and that he can undo the social injustices of our world can impact our world for this glory of Christ. On this last note, I just want to say to all of our moms, to all of the women who are serving faithfully their families, whether you are a single woman, whether you are a woman who has 
young children, the youngest of children, just gave birth to children, whether you have now all grown children, whether you are, are having difficulty in having children. You know, this word is a great reminder for us of, one, all the challenges you face, but of the idea, the same idea that you cannot experience joy in your mothering and in your spiritual mothering until you are transformed, until you are changed. It just isn't within you. It isn't. Don't be, don't be shocked when something really bad comes out of your mouth. A word, a hurtful word, even towards people you, quote, love. That's, that's not shocking. It shows the challenge that we have. But oh, how great of a Savior we have who has changed you, revived you. Let's prepare for communion. If you have um, your bread and your wine or your grape juice nearby, I want to invite you to, at this moment to take this time to prepare. And um, I'm going to pray and the band's going to come up. And we'll pray together. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that you love us so much. You gave us your son. You provided for us richly. And you are Lord of all. And I pray, Father, that as we prepare for communion, that we remember what it took for us to actually be able to look to you, to remember you, to delight in you. Be especially with all the women of our church. Bless them, regardless of where they are in their stage of life. I really pray that you would hear their cries. You would remind them that you are a God who loves them. You've proven it by giving your only son. You've borne their joys and their sorrows and you release joy in them. So I really pray for that, O oh Lord. And I thank you and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>